This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Never has mental health been as important as it is. Be it mindfulness, meditation, or walking, we're looking for as much expert information these days as we can get our hands on. But what about preventative measures? Just as we eat well and exercise to prevent the body getting unhealthy, can you do the same with the brain? Well, my guest on this week's show is Kimberly Wilson, a chartered psychologist who's worked in Europe's largest women's prison in Holloway, North London, and is now running her own clinic. And she believes that we need to consider the brain in a more physical way, just like the heart or the liver. She's also the author of How to Build a Healthy Brain and is the host of the very popular Stronger Mind podcast. Kimberly, welcome to Real Health. How's it going? Thank you very much. It's going very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. So you have light at the end of the tunnel over in the UK. I'm going to start there. How are things Mm. over there? Um, They are much better now, having had this announcement. You can almost feel the kind of palpable relief for people as we have, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, something to look forward to, because I think that's been one of the most difficult things is not knowing how long you have to endure for, you know, things are much easier to endure when you know how long you need to be strong for, really. And so having... I, the risk is that the, the date will change and I think that will be very difficult. But at this stage, people are finding it, you know, a source of optimism. And, and, and that at least is a little bit of a relief. And is it fair to say the past 12 months, you've seen incredibly difficult situations with clients in terms of mental stress and anxiety, possibly worse than ever before? Yeah, I think certainly this last kind of what we're calling the third lockdown has been the worst. You know, so this time last year when it was just kicking in in the March, there was a sense of, you know, it's only going to be once and, you know, we'll just hunker down and it'll be all right. There was a kind of novelty value. People were making new memes about it. You know, it was this kind of strange, almost adventure that we were entering into. Now, it's it feels like drudgery. People aren't really sure whether they can trust the messages that are coming out. There's a lot of misinformation. It's been the middle of, a, you know, a cold winter, which is always difficult for people anyway. So I really I definitely have seen a kind of compounded effect of winter plus the kind of pandemic stress on top of that. Tell us a little bit about the work that you did in Holloway. I'm, I'm intrigued in terms <laughs> of your experiences from those days. Yeah, so I was running the, what was called the Primary Care Mental Health Service. So essentially the NHS mental health service within the prison. So the inside prison, you kind of get a replication of the services you would get on the outside. So there's a dentist, there's a hospital wing, there's a, you know, a, a, a women's health clinic um, and, and also a therapy service. And as you can imagine, there's quite a lot of mental health need in prison. I think, I think at the time, something like 76% of people in prison had at least two diagnosable mental health conditions. So there was an enormous amount of need. And it was also 
a risk in terms of security. So it wasn't just that people were suffering, but also if you were self-harming or if you were feeling aggressive or violent, it became a security issue for the prison. prison. So um, my job essentially was to, I managed my team, I had my own caseload. I was assessing people both for risk and mental health need and then allocating people kind of in terms of priority, but pretty everybody was pretty much high need, but trying to get people the best help they could as quickly as possible. Okay. And was it anxiety? Uh, was it depression? What were the common things people were pre- presenting with? There is an enormous amount of trauma in prison. Uh, nowhere else have I heard the level of kind of childhood trauma um, that you hear in prison. So there is childhood violence, abuse, neglect, all, all of the above, um, you know, people who were whose parents got them onto drugs, you know, things like this, like really extreme trauma. So it was mostly the 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 repercussions of that, and often many many of the women were in prison because of drugs, and it was often drugs that they got onto to try to block out the pain of the trauma they'd experienced. So the the detox wing was also always very busy, and some women would literally say that they would commit a, a you know a petty crime, so they might shoplift um, a small amount in order to get sent to prison in order to be able to get access a detox service. So this is the level of need we were talking about. Wow. And bringing it back to the general population, is it fair to say anxiety, mental health issues, they've become more prevalent over the last couple of years um, in terms of potentially more so than previous generations, in terms of people are more open talking about it. It's more, it's it's become more normal to discuss it mm-hmm. and to talk about it now. I think there's um, a mixture of effects that are happening. I think absolutely the kind of millennials and younger are, very, very happy talking about their therapy on social media. They're talking about their therapy with their friends. They're talking about their therapy. Anytime you can, you know, get them to talk about anything, they're talking about their therapy. And that's a big change, I think, from the older generations. Um, There is, though, in the last 15 years, rates of psychological distress, particularly in girls, seem to have accelerated beyond the reporting effects. So they don't think it's just because we're talking about it more or just because we're better at assessing and identifying distress more. We think girls are much more, well, young people, but girls in particular are much more distressed. And that is evidenced in the increasing number of people showing up at A&E for self-harm or suicide attempts. So these kind of very explicit uh, ways of assessing the psychological distress are going up as well. Um, and the question is, why is this generation, why do they uh, they appear much more vulnerable? And, and there are a range of different um, responses or ideas around that. You know, one is that they grew up with a much more kind of an- anxious set of parents. They grew up with, you know, kind of social media at their fingertips, telling them the worst news, the bad news, the terrible things that might happen to them. They have much less job security. So things are much less sure for them. So there's a, a kind of combination of factors, which might mean that the generation coming up, Gen Z, have a different set of challenges to face them and and fewer of the kind of safety nets um, that might help them to navigate those challenges that people older than older than them might have. Okay, the book is called How to Build a Healthy Brain. Let's chat all things brain health. I'm intrigued by this one. Of course. People are always looking for aspects of health to improve and they look at the obvious stuff in terms of, you know, cardiophysical, uh, nutritional, but the brain is something that we should be really looking at because it is really important for our health. 
Um, yeah, like everything comes back to the brain, right? You might have a six pack, you might, you know, have the best, be in the best shape of your life. But if you feel miserable, if you can't concentrate, if you've got brain fog, if you're depressed or you have, you know, negative attentional bias, then you're not getting the best out of your life. And so there's this weird way in which when we think about health, we can sit down and think, okay, I, sh I should eat well, you know, maybe I won't smoke so that I don't get lung cancer or I'll, I'll make sure I exercise to make sure that, you know, I, I keep my weight in check. But no one's thinking about the most important organ in the body and how we we keep it healthy and how we protect it for the long term. It's a very strange disconnect we have with the brain and mental health. And we need to treat it in a more physical way. Absolutely. You know, and because when people think about their mental health, because your your mind is about I and consciousness and how I feel, people just assume that there's no direct way in. And even when we think about addressing mental health concerns, there's, you know, it's talking therapy or psychotropic medication. We don't tend to think about anything else that might be related to the body or the physiological needs of the brain. But, you know, for example, when you're when your heart isn't work, when your heart is unhappy, when your heart is struggling, you'll have heart palpitations or high blood pressure, or maybe you'll have, you know, fainting. You'll know that something is up with your heart because something is going on with its functions and what we know that it's supposed to do. And it, what I want people to understand and kind of see is that it's the same principle with your brain, that when something is going on with the brain, you see a problem with its functions. And the functions of the brain are memory and mood and attention and your ability to work towards goals and be able to bring, to, you know, work up some effort to do something that's difficult. So we need to be thinking about what we consider our mental health functions in relation to what might be happening in the underlying health and structure of the brain. And is it fair to say that, I suppose, when it comes to mental health, coping mechanisms are things that are generally the go-to as opposed to preventative measures. And, you know, people focus on that coping mechanism, but there are lots we can do to prevent mental health issues. Yeah, like it, with the brain, it's as if, it's A and E. So, you know, we never think about prevention. We talk to children about, you know, don't start smoking or cut back on smoking because you might end up with lung cancer in 20, 30, 40 years time. You know, we, we think about prevention in terms of, of the physical body. We don't think about prevention in terms of mental health. With mental health, we wait until something goes wrong. With mental health, it's much more like A&E. We wait for the crash, we wait for the damage, we wait for something to go wrong. And then we think, quick, what do we do now? How do we get the emergency services in to, to fix this and, and then get you back to baseline? And there's absolutely no reason why we should approach mental health like this because the brain is a physical organ. It relies on the same kind of conditions as the rest of the body in terms of exercise and good health and the right nutrients, good sleep and all of those sorts of things. So, and, and we know that we can build resilience into the brain. So if you start early, you can reduce the severity, reduce the risk and reduce the incidence of a lot of our very common mental health conditions like depression and like anxiety. How does stress affect the brain then? Because people are under huge amounts of stress mm. over the last 12 months and presumably it has a huge aspect on the, on the brain health. It absolutely does. And one of the things I really want people to understand is that stress isn't just something that's just in your head. Because people, again, it feels like this kind of ethereal, not real thing. I can just push it away and I'll be fine. But you need to understand that 
stress turns on your stress hormones and your stress hormones are incredibly powerful. Your stress hormones can turn off your growth hormone. They can stunt the growth of children. So we know when we talk about failure to thrive in children that experience neglect or stress, it's because the level of cortisol and, and, and glucocorticoids, stress hormones in their bloodstreams have turned off their ability to grow. Um, we know that the same thing can happen, you know, when women get very, very stressed, that their periods can, can stop or their you know, cycles become very long. And, and stress hormones have an effect on the brain. So there are areas of the brain, I mean, of course, because that's their purpose, is really to prepare your brain to deal with whatever danger you've perceived is coming towards you. Um, but there are areas of the brain that have a really rich in receptors for your stress hormones. And one of those areas is an area called the hippocampus, which is kind of the big coordinator of memory. And the reason that the hippocampus is rich in these receptors is because when something goes wrong, your brain wants you to remember so that you're better equipped to deal with it the next time. It's like, okay, this is a terrible emergency. This is what you did last time. Let's get out of here quickly next time. Um, but because it has so many receptors, because it can like soak up so much stress hormone, it can be overwhelmed. And then it, too much stress hormone, too many stress hormones can, can damage the hippocampus, which is why we see a relationship between stress and poorer memory in people who have prolonged and chronic stress. A little bit of stress every now and again, not a problem. Your, your brain can recover, but chronic stress becomes a real problem for brain health. You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Let's chat through the toolkit now around brain health. Sleep is one of the big ones. We're going to start with sleep. And we've talked about sleep on the show a couple of times. It's on my, 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 my kind of box of tools I tell people all the time. It is really important for every aspect of health, but essentially brain health is crucial for two. Absolutely. And one of the big reasons is the association between poor sleep and your risk of Alzheimer's disease. So certainly in the UK, we know that, well, and outside of coronavirus times, the leading cause of death in the UK isn't cancer, it isn't heart disease, it's not type 2 diabetes, it's dementia. More people are dying of dementia than anything else. Um, and, and the leading cause of, of disability worldwide is depression. And with both of these conditions, we know that sleep is often a precursor. So problems with sleep often come before you have your early diagnosis of depression or, or Alzheimer's disease. And in particular, in deep sleep, so when you can imagine your brain is a bit like a factory, it's taking in certain components, nutrients, proteins, turning them into neurotransmitters, and it, it also produces waste. Um, and that you need a waste clearance system, kind of the garbage trucks of your brain to come around. So your brain does that during the day, but that rate of clearance is doubled during sleep. And in particular, there's a protein that builds up called amyloid beta, which is one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And when that builds up and clumps, it can damage the nerve cells. It can essentially block messages going through and, and nerve cells die back. And so we think having good a good rate of clearance of those built up kind of junk proteins is really, really important to reducing your risk of the biggest killer in the UK, which is which is dementia. So for lots of reasons, mood and attention and all that sort of stuff, sleep is really important, but also in terms of the long-term brain health, your long-term brain health. Okay, great. Food and brain health, the nutritional mm. component of it, really important as well. And it can affect your brain performance. And, and literally the structure, structure of your brain. So mothers who don't get enough of the right fats during pregnancy have children whose brains are smaller. 
because your brain is literally made of fats that you can only get through your diet. These omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA. Um, you can't, your body cannot make them. They cannot make them in sufficient amounts in order to create a good, healthy, complex structure. And in animal trials, when the, um, the kind of mouse mother didn't get enough of this DHA, the hippocampal, so the memory cells of her babies had 50% fewer connections than mouse pup mothers that did have enough of these fats. Um, we know also, for example, that because of our, um, our consumption of oily fish, things like salmon, trout, herring, sprats, those sorts of, you know, good fatty fish, um, which is where we get these fats, because our consumption has really dropped off in the last since about the 70s, um, researchers are seeing a correlation for the first time in human history, a drop in IQ. So that we think IQ is dropping because our brains are chronically starved of the fats that it needs for its literal structure. So this is a big concern. And what we know, for example, is that less than 5% of children in the UK are getting enough of these fats. So brains that are still developing and your brain is still growing up until the age of 25, they're not getting the fats, the literal building blocks required to build a healthy brain. So it's a big concern. And, and again, it's one of the reasons we think that younger generations might be ex experiencing more mental health concerns is because literally their brains are more vulnerable because they're not getting the right building blocks for, for brain health. Wow. So oily fish is, is a really good brain food. Absolutely. It really is. Well, you know, as your grandma told you, you know, get that oily fish in twice a week. Make sure you're getting enough because your brain is literally made of it. Wow. OK, this is off. This is fascinating. It's the first time we've had brain <laughs> chat on the, on the show and it's brilliant. OK, let's move it on to physical activity. Obviously, we talk mm. about this a huge amount in terms of endorphins and all of that. But I'm fascinated mm. with regards to your own approach or aspect to it in terms of brain health. It's crucial. Yeah. Um, in terms of protecting your brain, the research on exercise is probably the most robust research we have in the clinical literature. Um, and one of the things it's worth people knowing is that from around, depending on your underlying health, but from around the age, your late 40s, late 50s, your brain starts to shrink. Your brain will literally start to shrink by about half a percent to one percent. A year, to 2% a year, depending, you know, if you, if you end up with kind of more neurodegenerative neurodegeneration. Um, and that's kind of considered normal. I personally don't consider it normal. I really would rather my brain didn't shrunk, shrink. Um, and what we know is that people who maintain regular physical exercise, particularly starting at midlife, retain more of their brain volume. And in a trial, which was just looking at walking, they started a group of people at, in middle age and later years with five minutes uh, a day, working up to three sets of 40 minute walks per week. When they scanned their brains before and after, they had essentially reversed their brain aging. They had grown their brains by that same 2% we would have expected them to shrink by. So we know that physical activity can literally grow your brain. And it's it's why it's so important. It's not just about looking good, it's about staying sharp, being able to, you know, remember your family members and, and keep a healthy brain into your later years and, 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 and to retain that independence that we're, we all really, really want. And in terms of that movement, is there any correlation between intensity of movement? So if you're going out for your walk, does it have to be a certain intensity of a walk or mm -hmm. any kind of movement at all? 
Um, so we'd start with the baseline, any kind of movement, movement and um, essentially any time mo you move, your brain gets a boost. But what's really interesting is that all kinds of exercise really are important. So aerobic exercise is really important in terms of keeping your blood vessels healthy and vascular dementia is a big issue. So making sure that they stay healthy and flexible and open and, and that blood flow can get to your brain to bring the nutrients, to bring the oxygen and all the things that your brain needs to, to stay healthy. Um, and uh, resistance exercise as well, because the same compound that makes your muscles grow actually crosses into the blood brain barrier and can help your brain grow. And this is why we think we're seeing the effects. Um, the, we do see higher levels of a growth factor called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, with higher intensity. So HIIT training um, tends to be um, to turn up the dial on those growth factors. But it doesn't have to be crazy, crazy intense. Even no, If you're walking and then walk a bit faster for a couple of minutes, just that increase can be enough. So I don't want people to think they have to start running marathons in order to get any of these, these changes. Walking is a great place to start. Doing a few body weight exercises, press-ups, sit-ups, those sorts of things, squats, air squats, that sort of thing is really, really beneficial. And just moving as, as much as you can, as often as you can will really help. Amazing. Okay, great. Um, emotions. Okay, so let's mm. move on to that and, and, <laughs> and how people can deal more effectively with emotions. And again, this is really kind of current because our emotions mm. are all over the place. Uh, in Ireland, sure. we, ju we just had an announcement that we're getting an extra six weeks of level five lockdown. People's emotions are on the floor. Oh, so yeah, yeah. that um, your emotions and how you handle your emotions massively impact your, your brain health. It really does. And it's one of the, one of the, the chapters that I really would direct people to in the book much more than say, even the sleep one is the emotions one because they're so misunderstood. And I think people often think that it's just that A, that emotions don't mean anything. So you might as well just ignore them because they're just a hassle. Um, and B, that you can just push through them. And that's just, it's just not true. What we know from clinical studies is that people who try to repress their emotions aren't stronger, they're actually more vulnerable than people who actually face them, deal with them, allow them to be, because it takes energy to suppress your emotions. So what they do, for example, is clinical trial, they get two groups of people, you've got two buckets of ice water, and you get one group and you say, put your hand in the ice water for as long as you can, you guys are allowed to F and blind and swear and curse and, you know, whatever you like, just just do what you need. Um, and the other group, please just try and stay stoic. Don't say anything. Just try and keep it in. And in trials and other trials like this, what they see over and over again is that the people who aren't allowed to express their emotions aren't able to hold their hand in the water for as long. They have less physiological resilience to the stressor. And that's because a big chunk of their energy is used to suppress how they're really feeling and to express something that's completely different. So we know that people who are able to express their emotions, deal with it and express self-compassion for themselves. So we're all human, we all go through bad times. It's, I'm not weak, I'm not failing, it's not a problem. I'm allowed to ask for help bounce back much more quickly from psychological distress than people who try to cover it up, repress it, suppress it and, and move on. And, and, and that's partly also because they're not spending as much time having a go at themselves about feeling bad. So it's not just the emotion, it's also your attitude to the emotion that can take energy away from just using it to get through what you're going through. Okay, next one up, I'm fascinated by this one, social media and the impact of social media. 
Uh, I'm glued to my phone and I know it's not good for my health. And you're going to tell me that it's not good for my health. But however, here we go. (laughs) Well, half and half. So when this research into social media started, people were like, oh, no, screens are the worst. It's it's going to be all over. We're going to lose our ability to talk to each other. Um, And and the correlation, people were like, is it just the amount of time you spend on your screens, which is the problem? And that it doesn't seem to be the case that it's just the amount of time you spend, but how you spend your time online and using social media, which seems to be the issue. So the worst ways to use social media are kind of incidentally and passively. So when you just automatically pull out your phone because you've stopped in traffic or you're waiting in the coffee shop for your coffee, or it's just the first thing you reach for when you wake up, that sort of usage and, and when you're just scrolling through, but not really paying attention, you're just looking through other people's posts and pictures and angry rants, that tends to be associated with worse mental health outcomes. What we think is associated with better mental health outcomes, particularly for young people, is a deliberate and positive use. So following a range of diverse and inspirational people, so people who you admire, people who you might aspire to be like, who but you don't compare yourself negatively to, um, and then to engage positively. So making positive uh, comments on your friend's post or putting out something positive or or using it to make connections for your for your work or something like that that tends to be associated with better health outcomes so you know don't spend too much time on it but the time you spend on it make it thoughtful deliberate and mindful okay that's a change i have to make after this conversation <laughs> absolutely i'm not i watch tv and scroll on my phone at the same time endlessly and endlessly and endlessly i know it's not good for you and now i'm going to commit to making that change after our chat um, any other lifestyle factors people need to kind of take into consideration for brain health so we've chatted through lots of simple tips and simple mm-hmm. tools one of the ones i am interested in is the whole idea of positivity and positive people and surrounding yourself with healthier mm-hmm. people or positive people and if that has an impact on brain health yeah, the only the only caveat that I would say about that is um, what I call toxic positivity. So there's a way in which some people are like, you're never allowed to feel bad, never feel sad, <laughs> everything's great, hashtag living my best life. And there's a kind of it's a kind of repression, isn't it? It's kind of it's still kind of trying to pretend that you're not feeling sad things. So aside from that, yes, I think you're you're generally better off. Um, you know, they say you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with and if you can spend time with people with whom you feel like you're allowed to be yourself so if you're in a group of people where you feel like you're having to fake it if I did a a Q&A on um, introversion yesterday and the number of people people who are just natural introverts who feel they have to fake being extrovert to fit in and it's just exhausting and you don't feel like you can be yourself so a group of people with whom you feel safe and you can be yourself um, a group of people that you think are inspiring interesting honest and people whom you think have good values you know people who you think are you know decent would stand up for people have a kind of moral virtue that is going to be better off for your mental health and and is going to help you to feel like you're being a better version of yourself Kimberly Wilson, that's been absolutely fascinating <laughs> catching up with you. I've learned loads already. Uh, more fish in my diet, definitely. Less phone use and more uh, specific phone time, without a doubt. Remind us again of the name of the book. It's called How to Build a Healthy Brain. 
Amazing. And your podcast is a Stronger Minds podcast as well, isn't it? Stronger Minds, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been fascinating listening for our listeners. Loads of tips and loads of tools to improve brain health. And we really, really appreciate it. Folks, my thanks to Kimberly Wilson for joining us on the show today. Her book is How to Build a Healthy Brain and our Stronger Mind podcast. I'll be back next week with another Real Health. And as ever, in the meantime, you know where we are. At Carl Henry PT on Twitter and on Instagram and realhealth at independent.ie. Try those tips, apply those tools, and we'll see you next week. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.